Good morning, and welcome to your Friday Five, a weekly newscast from the Boston University News Service. It's November 1st, 2019. I'm Susanna Sudborough. And I'm Hannah Harn. Today we'll take a look at our top stories from this week, including the end of the scooter pilot in Brookline, new approaches to handling cannabis waste, and the resolution of an August bank robbery. Plus, our two spookiest favorites from Halloween in New England. Let's get started so you can start your day. Brookline was the first town in the state to embark upon a pilot program to allow scooters, bringing in about 400 motorized machines from these companies, Bird, Lime, and Spin. The program began on April 1st and is set to expire on November 15th. The town hosted last week's forum at the Brookline Town Hall to discuss the future of electric scooters. Present at the forum were Heather Hamilton and Chris Dempsey. Present at the forum were Heather Hamilton and Chris Dempsey, two members of the five-person select board of elected citizens tasked with making a decision on what happens with the electric scooters in Brookline. Alongside them on the panel were Brookline Transportation Division Administrator Todd Curran and Brookline Police Sergeant John Canney. They are a great solution for inequities of cost and transportation because it's very inexpensive to rent it as a scooter share, so they're perfect for low-income people, said Brookline resident John Harris. Once the pilot program ends, the select board must decide how effective the scooters were in town and come to a concrete decision by the November deadline. While pedestrians showed some concern at the forum about their experiences with scooter users, some scooter users detailed what they said was a lack of regard for scooters and bicycles by drivers in many parts of Brookline and the danger caused by the poor construction of some roads. Christy Jensen complained that bike lanes are often blocked by cars and law enforcement does little to change this. Every day my life is threatened and so are the lives of other cyclists and scooter users, she said. This story was contributed by George Avenaugh. The unmistakable smell of hay, bright carnival lights, whispers in the distance, a sudden huge blast of fire coming out of the top of a railroad car. These are your first tastes when you enter spooky world, Nightmare New England. The Scream Park has been a New England staple for nearly 30 years. Started by Dave Bertolino in 1991 in Berlin, Massachusetts, the haunted attraction had many homes, including Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, before it found its current residence in Litchfield, New Hampshire. Its current owners, Mike Accomando and Wayne Caulfield, bought the attraction in 2008 and moved it to Mel's Funway Park, a family fun park they already owned. Now an operation of over 200 people, Spooky World is made up of two haunted houses, two haunted walks, and a mile-long haunted hayride. But even through all the changes, the park has stayed true to its original design. Unlike some horror attractions which focus on high-tech special effects, Akamando said Spooky World is looking to get back to the style of traditional haunted houses, which rely on actors and sets for scares. And that's not the only part of the park that has stuck around. Akamando said that within the multi-generational cast, some of the actors have been there since the attraction's inception. 75% of the people don't come back, but 25% get the bug, he said. And when they get the bug, they really become part of it. Akamando said he just wants the park to keep going, regardless of whether his kids take it over in the future, so people can keep making good memories at Spooky World. I don't just want them to be scared. I want them to forget what they have going on in their life for that period, he said. I want them to just come out and leave that at the doorstep and come into our world for a while and just have a night of fun. This story was contributed by Susanna Sudbro. 
The burgeoning cannabis industry is generating billions of dollars, but it is also creating massive amounts of plant waste that could be used as food, clothing, paper, or building material, argued several speakers at the Cannabis World Congress and Business Exposition in Boston this weekend. While CBD is important and we need to make a whole lot of it, it's not the only thing that we need to do with hemp, said Guy Rocourt, co-founder of California cannabis wellness company Papa and Barkley. The CWCB Expo ran Thursday through Saturday, providing a space for dispensary owners, growers, suppliers, researchers, and regulators to build networks in the midst of the so-called green rush, which has exploded in the past five years due to decriminalization and legalization of marijuana throughout the United States. Most profit comes from selling the high-inducing, THC-laden flowers or isolating cannabinoids, the plant's psychoactive chemicals, to create more mild cannabis products like CBD oil, according to the Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources. But according to Rocourt, this cannabinoid-focused extraction results in huge amounts of unused plant material called biomass. Nobody's even asking what happens to the biomass after that, Rocourt said. You got the money out of it. Now it's going to waste, or hopefully to a proper landfill or something, I don't know. To avoid that future, the industry needs to preserve its homegrown, eco-friendly roots. The industry should consider the needs of the farmer and the environment, Rocourt said, and hold itself accountable. If done well, it could stand as a model for sustainable agriculture practice. This story was contributed by Caitlin Falds. When John Diamond was seven years old, he and his brother clambered into the family garage to try on hats. Merchandise from vendors filled the space. Dressy, bejeweled hats, stockings, gloves, and pocketbooks. Diamond's parents were milliners, and they owned a growing retail chain in the Boston area. The store, Dorothy's Boutique, sold the fashionable odds and ends worn by the city's church-going masses. From a young age, Diamond vowed never to take over the store, having seen the way it took over his parents' lives. Now, in his 60s, he's owned and managed Dorothy's Boutique for over 30 years. When he took it over in the 1980s, Diamond transformed the store into the costume shop it is today, selling everything from glossy wigs to Chucky masks sourced from online vendors and his own creative thrifting. Diamond works year-round to keep the shelves packed with bright makeup and colored contact lenses, plastic-wrapped costumes, and unique party decor. But October is Dorothy's busiest time of year, with shoppers coming from across Boston to descend on the store for goodies. In the week leading up to Halloween, the store spends most of the day at capacity, Shoppers line up down Massachusetts Avenue waiting to get in to browse, Diamond said. But Dorothy's Boutique faces new challenges as rent prices increase and online retailers loom. Worst of all, the building housing the boutique is slated for demolishing in a year. As a result, Diamond said he believes his career is winding to a close. For Diamond's son, Jesse, growing up in the store meant access to any costume a kid can dream of, from a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle to a Blue Power Ranger. As an undergraduate at Boston College, he wowed his fraternity brothers with an inflatable fat bastard costume from the Austin Powers movies. Jesse remembers his father going above and beyond for customers every Halloween, taking special care to order outfits and accessories for the people who couldn't find exactly what they wanted in the store. He was definitely in his zone, Jesse said of his father's long hours in the shop. He just wants to make everybody happy. And that means that no costume request is too outlandish at Dorothy's. I keep an open mind, and I have a lot of vendors. And if I don't have it, then I can make it happen for you, Diamond said. I can totally find it. This story was contributed by Simone Migliori. Last but not least, 
A New York man accused of robbing a Revere bank in August before making a daring escape on a public bus and being caught counting his money in a resident's front lawn made his initial appearance before a judge in U.S. District Court Tuesday. David Hattersley, 45, pleaded not guilty to one count of bank robbery. Police said Hattersley allegedly entered a Bank of America on American Legion Highway in Revere at around 1.25 p.m. on August 19th with what appeared to be a black handgun and handed the bank teller a note, according to a federal affidavit. The teller gave Hattersley $13,100 before he fled the scene on a public bus, first attempting to pay the bus driver with a $100 bill before trying to bribe the driver $500 to drive him to Dorchester, police said. Hattersley exited the bus near Broadway Street and Yemen Street in Revere and walked about a half mile before approaching a woman's home while her children played in the yard. The robber said in substance he had just robbed a bank and he needed a ride to Dorchester, the homeowner told Revere Police. The woman went into her home and contacted police while Hattersley stood outside and counted his money, according to the affidavit. The woman told police Hattersley was carrying what appeared to be a black semi-automatic pistol and large sums of cash. Court documents said that when police arrived, they found Hattersley sitting in the grass still counting money. He was detained and police found $6,300 cash and his weapon of choice, a BB gun. Hattersley faces up to 25 years in prison, up to three years of supervised release, and a maximum fine of $250,000 for using violence and threats to rob a federally insured bank. This story was contributed by Chris O'Brien. And that's it for your Friday Five. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next week. For the full versions of this week's stories, visit bunewsservice.com slash podcasts and click on today's episode. We'd like to thank today's contributing writers, George Abenaugh, Simone Migliori, Chris O'Brien, Caitlin Falds, and me, Susanna Sudbrough, as well as our production team. This week's episode of Friday Five was produced by Hannah Harn. And be sure to check out our latest episode of Between the Bylines, where we sit down with our contributors to discuss top stories through the lens of student journalism. Visit us online at bunewsservice.com slash podcasts for more information.